Welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight interesting, successful, and normal people from many different backgrounds who all happen to be dads. Brandon Coford is not a businessman by formal training, but he's one of the entrepreneurs that I have the most respect for. He's had several great ideas and then put in the blood, sweat, and tears to make those dreams a reality. After hustling for years, he's built several profitable businesses that allow him to spend plenty of time with his wife and... He's got six kids. A wife and six children. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and consider telling a friend about the show. The next three guests will be first, an author and a counselor called The Dad Whisperer. Second, the founder of a group called Dope Black Dads. And third, a partner from PWC. Now, back to Brandon. If you're curious to hear what a prosthodontist is and you want to learn a little about fake teeth, you're going to love the first five minutes. If that sounds weird and you don't want to hear questions inspired by Sean's ADD, then go ahead and jump to uh, the part where Brandon talks about building a large dental practice through acquisition. That's uh, somewhere around six minutes in. So you can jump there, sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Thanks, everybody. Brandon, thanks for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. You are a specialized type of dentist. You also have three other dentists who all you guys own your own practice, and that's growing naturally and through acquisitions. You're an Air Force veteran. Um, You invented and patented a better, faster, stronger, cheaper way to do denture conversions. And you started a successful business selling kits for those denture conversions to other dentists who also do those types of procedures. So um, first off, I wanted to um, just ask a question about your your profession. And that's most people, pretty much everyone knows what a dentist is. What is a prosthodontist? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that everybody asks. Um, Essentially, a prosthodontist is somebody you really never want to have to meet. Because it means that something has gone terribly wrong with your teeth, whether they didn't develop or whether they were destroyed by a decaying process or you had severe trauma, you ended up losing one or most or all of your teeth and you want to have them reconstructed. The prosthodontist is the specialist in reconstructing uh, lost teeth or tooth structure. So the specialists in crown and bridge and implant restorations. And as you mentioned earlier, I I have a patent pending on a procedure that really makes restoring an entire arch full of teeth back to a, a functional full arch of teeth, prosthetic teeth, of course. Yeah. So... Prosthodon is someone who you'd go see if you had knocked a tooth out or you had all of your teeth come out or, or anything like that. They can build you a new tooth or set of teeth, essentially. Correct. Yep. And what are the like what is a fake tooth made out of? Well, there are lots of different materials. Um right now, one of the hot um material selections for teeth is zirconia, which is a type of ceramic. It's a very, very strong ceramic. Um, but they can be 
lithium disilicate, lithium disilicate, which is another type of ceramic or feldspathic porcelain or even gold. I use a lot of gold, um, gold alloys and uh, titanium implants are made out of titanium and then you have a titanium mm. abutment and then you put a ceramic crown on top of that. So um, the dentistry is a lot to do with material science and material selection. Hmm. I remember it was a couple of weeks ago we were joking around and I was like, hey, maybe it'd be easier just to get a whole new set of fake teeth. And you were like, eh, that's not a good idea. A lot more maintenance. Like <laughs> if someone has, let's say they had a horrific accident or just for whatever reason, they had to get all of their teeth replaced. Like what I, I assume it's like uh, permanent materials, you know, it sounds like that, that type of uh, porcelain is really strong. Like what, it, what kind of maintenance do you have to do um, with a whole new set of teeth? Oh, that's a great question. So um, somebody's lost all their teeth. They've had at least four implants placed and then they have a, a, a full arch or a full bridge screwed down onto those implants. So now they think that they're done for the rest of their lives. That's all I need. Actually, no. You know those cleanings that you didn't like to do for your own teeth? It's actually more expensive to clean the prosthesis once you've uh, done the full arch reconstruction, right? So uh, once or twice a year, we actually unscrew the bridge from the implants, do a good thorough cleaning of the implants themselves, and we pop the teeth into an ultrasonic bath to clear off all the plaque and the debris that accumulates over those six to 12 months. And then we put it all back together again, plug up the holes and dismiss you, mm. see you six months later. So it's an easier cleaning experience than when you had teeth. However, it is more expensive than when you had teeth. Mm. Interesting. So um, I'm I'm fascinated to hear about your experience as an entrepreneur. And before we get to the smart denture conversions venture that you started with this uh, new patent that you have pending, I want to just talk in general about a medical practitioner who's opening a practice and growing that practice and buying additional practices. You've got a couple partners who I, I believe are like longtime friends uh, that you met in the profession. Um, what what kind of lessons have you learned? Like, tell us a little about your story. What lessons have you learned? Uh, and, and maybe any other advice for doctors or dentists uh, who are about to embark on that type of path? Uh, great. Yeah. So, you know, to become a dentist, you go to four years of dental school beyond um, your four year degree in college. And then um, I met two guys in my at my dental school were really cool and you know they were two years behind me in school i didn't think anything of it at the time and you know never thought that it would mean anything well um the school i went to was extremely expensive and so to help pay for school i joined the air force because they have a health profession scholarship program where they will pay for your tuition they'll pay for all your books they'll pay for uh you know all of your enrollment fees and everything and they'll even pay you a monthly stipend for living expenses and all they ask for is one year commitment for every one year that they paid for it was an incredible opportunity so awesome. to help pay for this very expensive education i accepted the scholarship and uh you know 
graduated from dental school and immediately became a captain in the Air Force and uh, went down to San Antonio, Texas and um, began my three years of training as a prosthodontist. So those were very, very intense years. Is that a military training program for military prosthodontists or the military is just funding you to go to a civilian prosthodontist program? Yeah, so the military does both. They'll either pay for you to go to a civilian program or they also have their own um, dental training programs, right? Okay. So I went to an Air Force prosthodontics residency but we were also attached to the uh, University of San Antonio, no, the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in San Antonio, which is a private institute. Well, it's a state pub, state institution, but um, not associated with the military. So the military pays for your tuition for the master's degree that you're going to get out of out of that. Um, Right. university but all of the didactic and all of the um uh, clinical training is done on the air force installation which was Lack lackland air force base otherwise known as the gateway to the air force because that's where all of the um basic training for the air force is completed hey speaking of that let me let me pause um ADD is kicking in already, but basic training for someone who's going into the medical profession in the Air Force, is it like super easy? Is it just as bad as like regular basic training? What, what's it like? So I'm an, I'm an Eagle Scout and all growing up, I always looked forward to Boy Scout camp, right? The basic training or the commissioned officers training for me, it felt like a five-week Boy Scout training camp. It was, <laughs> it was awesome. It's a completely different experience for a medical professional who's already a commissioned officer. Their training is completely different than an enlisted member who's going through basic training. So when you think of your military training instructors, that's basic training. What I experienced was totally different. It was it was actually a lot of fun, and I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I was I was going to school in Cleveland, Ohio, and in Cleveland, Ohio, the winters are absolutely miserable. It'll dump 18 inches of snow every other day just because of that lake effect snow. It's crazy. <laughs> So I got to do my commissioned officers training in Montgomery, Alabama in March. So the weather was beautiful mm -hmm. and I got to take five weeks off of school. So it was a vacation for me. My poor wife was stuck in Cleveland, you know, with our two, oh. two babies and I get, I get notice or pictures or emails that, it just dumped 18 inches of snow and they were snowbound in our little cramped apartment that had poor heating and and I'm off having fun climbing ropes courses and just doing classroom work or uh marching drill exercises it was it was like a ton of fun i really loved it but ironically 
you know, I served six years in the United States Air Force as an officer. I never once touched a weapon of any kind. Not even in training? Not even in training. <laughs> they don't, wow. They don't waste their bullets on dentists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So when, when you think of a, a dentist who served in the Air Force or the Navy or the Army, it's probably different for the Army, but it's not – I mean, it's just being a dentist. You just service – or you just serve the men and women in those services. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So I'm going to be honest. I don't even remember where we were when I asked you that question, uh, but I'm hopeful that you do because you're a very smart guy. Well, so you were just asking about um, the entrepreneur uh, experience, right? So yeah, I just, yeah. I was just giving you some context. Um, so my training program was three years. Okay. Remember those two guys I mentioned earlier that I met in dental school? They were two years behind me. Well, once they graduated, they did a one-year AEGD program. And so they they graduated their one-year residency at the same time that I graduated my three-year residency. And then um, we, all three of us, our first station, duty station outside of training was going to be at Lakenheath Royal Air Force Base in England which is about an hour and a half northeast of, of London. So <clears throat> we, we met up and had a great friendship and a great relationship as fellow officers at this dental clinic in England, experiencing, a, a, I mean, it was an incredible experience to be traveling all over Europe um, as a service member. And um, anyway, we we each had a large number of children. I'm thinking we each had about five or four or five children when we arrived, and then we each left with about five or six children when we left. Wow. And so the idea of uprooting children, that many children especially, every four years, which you'd have to do as a life member of the Air Force Dental Corps, um, we decided that it was going to be an a better situation for our family if we separated from the Air Force and established roots in some community. Well, these other two guys that I knew from dental school, and then we grew our friendship in England, they felt the same way. And it's very expensive to um, run a dental practice. It's very expensive to buy a dental practice. It's very expensive to start one up. And with technology, it's just getting more and more expensive for a, you know, a solo practitioner to keep up with, with all of the advances and all the technological um, advances and um, equipment that you need in a modern dental practice. And so we thought it would be better for us to um, kind of combine our resources and have a group practice and model it after our Air Force experience, which is really um, what we've tried to do. Just take everything good about what we enjoyed about practicing dentistry in the Air Force 
and now apply that in the private sector. And for the most part, that's what we've been able to do. Um, and there are a lot of good things about military dentistry. Um, most notably is being able to provide the most appropriate care for the patient regardless of cost because mm -hmm. cost isn't a factor when you're providing care to a service member it's all about how are you going to keep the service member as healthy as possible so that they can do their job well so we come out of the air force with that mindset of let's just build a, a practice and a model and a mentality around just doing what's best for the patient what's going to give them the most long-term success with their teeth so um in 2014 all three of us decided to, well i guess there we met a fourth one along the way um whenever you're being stationed whenever you're leaving one duty station to another duty station the gaining duty station assigns a sponsor to the member service member who's coming to the duty the uh, gaining duty station so my sponsor his name was jake smith and he is the son of an air force maxillofacial prosthodontist of great reputation so um, it was just kind of a coincidence that i as a prosthodontist would be sponsored into this duty station by the son of a air force prosthodontist and uh, got to be good friends with him and he was one of the four original members of our group practice um so where was i so back in in 2014 all four of us now uh, fulfilled our commitment to the air force and we sought, sought to purchase some practices in an area that would be good for raising our family. So we settled on the Apex Cary Raleigh um, area of North Carolina. And um, we, were just, we were former Air Force dentists and we didn't have a whole lot of savings. We were still paying off student loans. Um, you don't have a history of what um what you can produce as a dentist because you know you worked in the air force and you only had one dental chair and so when you're looking at getting any kind of financing from a bank those are the things that they consider and you just don't have any kind of track record so we fought tooth and nail to get our financing to purchase our first practices in this area but we were able to do it it just took like three or four months of constant daily checking in with the bank saying hey we got to make this happen and uh we finally got it so i feel like somebody along that way has to see with the, the with the tenacity of your uh, approach and financing they're like these guys are going to succeed as dentists <laughs> they, they just won't give up <laughs> i'd give you money yeah. yeah so to this day i still i still don't understand the whole underwriting process <clears throat> you know who are these who are these 
faceless underwriters that these bankers always refer to who are making decisions about somebody they really don't know anything about. And anyway, yeah, yeah I still have kind of hard feelings towards underwriters. Yeah. <laughs> so so you, you finally get financing. How do you go about um, starting or buying a practice? And what were those yeah. early years like? Uh, those early years were miserable. So my prosthodontics residency, I told you were intense years, three intense years of from six in the morning until 12 o'clock at night, two in the morning, sometimes, you know, a full 48 hours without sleep, just Ugh. working on, on lab work and preparation for a big case or whatever. So luckily I had that experience because coming out of the Air Force and now starting this uh, this group practice, yes, we, we bought some practices, but we had to group those practices together and then merge them. And meanwhile, you're, you're learning about, okay, ugh, human resources isn't something I ever really had to worry about in the Air Force, mm. but now I actually have employees that have lives and they have um, histories in these practices, but we're trying to change things. And so we're trying to fight this uh, inertia, right? Mm. And so we would spend the, you know, 7.30 in the morning till four in the afternoon working with patients. And then we would have meeting after meeting after meeting to try to resolve some of these issues that we just weren't prepared for, nor were we really well equipped to handle. And so we would be in meetings until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, just trying to <laughs> trying to figure this out. So one lesson I've learned as an entrepreneur is that um, business hours and weekends mean nothing. Mm. It is, it is all the time you're on. So, so, and that's not a very fun part about entrepreneurship. Do you feel like you had, you knew what you were getting into in that sense? Or was that a bit shocking to see just how much you were always on? Oh, it was very shocking. You know, you hear about, oh, dentists, they only work Monday through Thursday. And, you know, well, I'll let you know when that actually happens in my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm 39 years old. And that's just not how it's been for me. Yes, I, I only see patients Monday through Thursday. But if you ask my wife and children how much I work, they would they would probably tell you that I never stop working. Yeah, true. For those uh, who aren't on this call, anyone listening to this, we started the call where you were in your uh, shop, like working. And what were you doing? You were working on some screws or something? Like, well, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, part of the Smart Denture Conversions Kit includes drills, and we have to modify these drills. And there are, you know, operations for moder modifying this drill. And uh, we just hired an employee to to do this for us. And as I was QCing, you know, quality checking his work, I noticed that they weren't to spec 
And so now here I am on a Friday where I don't see patients. So I'm not working, but I am. But um, I'm just mm -hmm. modifying those drills to meet specifications. Hmm. Never stops. Never so, stopped. so you purchased a few different dental practices that were existing, put them under one one name, and then have. Uh, am I right? You've acquired others since that time and and rolled them onto under the name, and it's Royal Oak Dental Group, right? And and right. what's it? So. First couple of years, really tough, ton, tons of work and um, just adjusting the momentum of the previous practices, getting the vision, you know, standardizing things. What's it like, you know, four or five, six years into it as the practice has continued to grow? Yeah, things are a lot better now, right? So about, um, so 2014, we had, purchased the three practices, two of which were merged physically, and we had two separate locations, but under the same brand. And so, like you said, just standardizing our, our protocols and standardizing our employee handbooks and, you know, trying to um, incorporate what we had learned from our Air Force, you know, having these clinical practice guidelines, having the Air Force instructions, everything standardized. So putting that all together. And then in 2015, we uh, started building our laboratory. Now our laboratory is a cost control center, right? So that we can have the flexibility to do what's right for the patient without um, having to raise fees. Um, so we started building the, the laboratory. And then in 20, at the end of that year, we bought another practice in a rural city called Siler City here in North Carolina. And it was just a doctor who had spent, uh, he was like 70 years old. And he was ready to retire, so we were very excited to take over his operations and then just roll it into the Royal Oak Dental Group family. So now we have a third location, Siler, uh, Royal Oak Dental Group at Siler City. And then um, in 2016, yeah, in 2016, we acquired three new practices. So now we're up to six locations. And um, we had um, brought in some associates and we were growing our doctors as well as our, our practice footprint. And then in 2017, we merged our laboratory operations with uh, a laboratory in Nightdale. North Carolina. So um, we purchased that laboratory and then just merged our laboratory operations with theirs. And in 2019, we acquired uh, a seventh location. But then we all in 2018, we sold one of our, our, our 2016 acquisitions. And so we're currently at six dental practice locations. We have a dental laboratory and um, we are 
always looking for a good practice that will fit in with the brand that we've created. And we constantly are searching for doctors who will adopt our philosophy of treatment and join us in, you know, our mission to provide the the state-of-the-art dental care to the people here in North Carolina. Hmm. So if you were talking to someone who's maybe about to, uh, they've finished dental school, maybe they're coming out of the military or they're just ready to start their own practice and they're interested in getting five or 10 locations and then building through acquisition, what would be your advice to them on anything they should do or certainly not do? Um, yeah, so somebody coming out of dental school, I would say dental school does not prepare you for practice at all. So you would be money ahead to work for at least three, four years before you start trying to build your own practice, because you really don't know who you are as a clinician until you've had some real world experience. So don't be in too much of a rush to um, to be an owner. Spend the years as an associate where you can just work nine to five and you have all of your weekends and now you can ha invest time into learning more and developing yourself as a clinician before you add on the headaches of ownership. And then to I, the, that advice kind of goes to the people who are coming out of the military as well. You only know one way of doing it, and that is the military way. And so it would be beneficial to first learn how to um, how to be a, an associate and then go on to ownership. And there's an advantage to that, too. Like one thing that I didn't understand is what it what does it mean to be an associate? Because I never was an associate. And so if you if you are an associate, if you start off as an associate and then you move into ownership, then when you bring on associates, you're much better for that associate mm -hmm. than if you had never been an associate. So just, you know, don't be in too much of a rush. Put the time in to really develop yourself to be an effective dental leader. Good. So we uh, shift gears a little bit to Smart Denture Conversions, which is your um, company that you started around, you know, that idea you had for a better, faster, stronger, cheaper way to do denture conversions. And you've patented it. You've built a successful business. Tell me a little about that story of having the idea, getting started, figuring out how to, who you needed to reach out to to market this. And, and kind of the lessons you've learned as you have grown that business into a profitable, you know, side venture. Yeah, let me start with just the lesson that I've learned and then I'll give you the background behind that lesson. Okay. The lesson I've learned is nobody's gonna give it to you. You have to go out and you've got to make it happen. So now the background to that story or the background to that lesson. Um, about six years ago, as a prosthodontist, there's one procedure that we do called a denture conversion 
that just drives me absolutely bonkers. And the reason why is because I will spend hours, hours in the laboratory to design a denture to be just mm, perfect, absolutely perfect, okay? And then this denture goes with me to a surgery where we're going to place, let's say, four or six implants, okay? And then I'm going to, once the implants go in and we're ready to um, do the conversion, I have to destroy what I spent hours to make perfect. And then the result I get is something that I'm actually embarrassed about because you've had to destroy this denture by creating these big holes that go all the way through the denture and then um, building it back up. It never looks good. It's just good enough for the three to six months that the patient's gonna be healing and then we transition them into a much nicer appliance, okay? Mm. Well, part of my Air Force training was your temporary should serve as the guide for what you want the final to look like. So every time that I've done this denture conversion by conventional means, it's always been like an embarrassment for me because it never looked like what I want in the final restoration. And so I would, uh, you know, five or six years ago, the thought came to me, well, geez, this would be a lot easier if, and the if was, if I had a little screw where the screw head could pop off the threads and then I could do this uh, operation in the laboratory real quick to finish it out. So, I'm just a prosthodontist of very little influence and a very little means in a not very well-known part of the world, right? So I don't have all the, that many resources or that many connections to make my, well, what if come to be? So several years go by and the thought always comes to me every time I had to do this denture conversion, ugh, this would be so much easier if. And so about two years ago, I was introduced by way of a referral from a surgeon to a man by the name of Charles Rudisil. Charles and I were just getting to know each other in the course of this uh, exam. And I found out that Charles used to work for Ericsson and he used to work for IBM in their material science division. And then for the last 15 years, Charles has had his own prototyping business. And I said, oh my gosh, Charles, can you make a little screw? And he says, well, sure, why? And I, so I described to Charles the problem. <clears throat> and then I described to him what I think is a good solution. And he says, yeah, I can see how that would make sense. Yeah, well, why don't you come by the shop <clears throat> and we'll start working on a prototype. And I said, oh my gosh, really? So for, this was July of 2018. So in August, 
we start working on a prototype that I can use on a surgery coming up in, in uh, September. <coughs> so again, we're working um, uh, my residency hours again. From 7.30 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon, I'm working in my dental practice. And then I'd head over to Charles's workshop from about five until midnight, working on making prototype parts for for us to test on in a surgery, right? And for anyone who's uh, read your bio and knows you have six kids, I'll fill in the rest of the story. That's that your wife is a rock star and um, she's in, incredible. So you, uh, she's I guess through through years of probably you doing this in in school and then uh, starting the practice, she's uh she's incredible. She's a role model to my wife and um, able to somehow handle that while you're investing a ton of time there to get this off the ground. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I could not do this without my wife. She is an absolute rock and she never complains and she just sees that this will be of worth to her. So she supports it and it's been incredible. But, um, so yeah, I'm back to residency hours, just helping Charles make prototype parts. And I'd be I'd be dishonest if I said I put as many hours into it as Charles did. But I tried to do as much as I could. And once I tried it out on our first case, it didn't go perfectly. There were some some flaws about it, but it was so much easier and it gave me such a better product. And so I said, Charles, I, I really think we have something here. And so he has a friend who uh, does a lot of patent work for IBM. And so we started on a patent application for this simple little screw. And um, fast forward now to about December, I started reaching out to implant companies and other companies. <clears throat> that I thought would be interested in this type of product, hoping for a licensing deal. Well, I didn't really get the type of attention that I wanted. And so I said to Charles, Charles, I'm sorry, we're going to have to make this happen. So um, in January, we set up a company. January of 2019, we set up a company. We put up a website. And then I just started hitting the hitting the the streets, if you will, um, just trying to show anybody and everybody this is what I can do with my product. How does it compare to what you can do? And it started getting people's attention. They're like, "Whoa, geez, you don't look like you're a very good prosthodontist, but that looks phenomenal." <laughs> so um, we had our parts manufactured here locally in North Carolina. <laughs> and then I started, you know, flying across the country, meeting people. And anytime I got any kind of lead, it didn't matter where it was, I'd chase after it. And I'd do go to be there for their first experience with it to make sure that they understood it and um, that they were successful with it. And then, um, in November of 2019, we started actually going to dental trade shows 
And that's when we started really getting some attention because we had concentrated crowds of people who would really be using this type of product. And they could tell immediately just off of our photos or our explanation that, oh my gosh, this really is a lot better. Mm-hmm. So it was around November that we really started taking off. So it took us a good, you know, a good 11 months for us from the time that we set up the company to the time that we were actually starting to get a, a good number of orders coming in. That's and awesome. So it was just growing November, December, January, February. We hit like double what we did in November. And wow. then March hit with COVID-19. And we we started to get scared like, shoot, is this ever going to – because, you know, our sales went down to essentially zero for March and April. And May it started coming back a little bit. But we thought, will we ever be able to get it back up to our February numbers? Well, yeah, June and July proved that we were back on track and this is a, a legitimate solution. And now we, we're starting to get all kinds of attention from implant companies and, and uh, laboratories. And it's been very exciting. I, I love this story because you're, you're a true entrepreneur. You're not uh, trained in sales, but you had an idea. And like you said, every lead you went for, you chased after it. I mean, I remember on multiple occasions, uh, it was like, oh, Brandon's in California this week. He's flying out to meet with somebody or do it, you know, just trying to pitch somebody. And I'm sure that not every pitch went as you wanted, but you uh, learned a lot along the way. You understood the technical side of it you could speak to you're you're in the target market um, as a prosthodontist and so you could speak to how it was helpful and um you built the um the brand and the awareness and i don't know it's just cool um what you so you said the the lesson was um no one's going to give it to you or something could you elaborate on that is that did i get it right absolutely yeah so nobody's going to give it to you so i had this good idea, this good concept. And I didn't want to have to get into the manufacturing and the assembly side of things. I just wanted to license this patent out to people who already have those types of uh, capabilities, right? Um, But until I had an actual um, professional working product nobody was taking me serious and so it goes back to what i was telling charles charles i think we have something here but we're gonna have to make it happen in order to uh, start getting the attention that we want from these bigger players so nobody's nobody's gonna give it to you um even if you have this good idea one of the implant companies it was so funny I flew out to California to pitch this to one of the largest implant companies in the world. And the their vice president or director of marketing, he loved it. And so he pushed it onto their world headquarters in Switzerland. Well, the feedback I got back from Switzerland was thank you for your for your idea, for your submission, but 
we are not interested in procedures as a business strategy we're looking for consumables and hardware and it just it drove me bonkers because the product that i have is a consumable product it's not a procedure it's a and it's hardware <laughs> it's a product that gets consumed while doing a procedure but it's it's a consumable so just pitching this to um no offense to executives out there who might be listening to this but um when i pitch it to an executive they don't get it when i pitch it to a prosthodontist it takes me all of 30 seconds before they say oh my gosh that's genius or to a laboratory technician who goes and does these chair side conversions it takes them all of 30 seconds and they're like where can i get this uh, so that I, I like it because it, I remember the first time explained it to me. It took me a, it took me a while to wrap my head around it, um, but I like the tenacity and the uh, just going continuing to go. I'm not giving up. Um, that's a true entrepreneur because it's funny as we as you were in the midst of all this, I was talking to a friend from from business school who was um, you know mid career came from software and they're like well i got a you know business you know an mba now and i want to go into uh healthcare startup and start my own and i'm like you don't you know it's like you'd have no experience in healthcare and yeah you got an mba but that doesn't make you an entrepreneur you know make what makes you an entrepreneur is the grit to just get after it and go have your idea run with it fail uh improve iterate keep going so i've always um respected you for that uh have a ton of respect for you uh just constantly growing and and uh improving man it's cool well it's it's been really great because i mean your expertise really is in sales and so it's been really great for me just to have you as a mentor in, oh shut up mentor yeah right um all right let's let's go uh Let's start with your origin story and kind of work through our the traditional dad conversations question sequence. So uh, tell me a little about where you grew up. What was little Brandon like as a kid? What were your interests? Uh, how would how would other people describe childhood Brandon? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Midvale, Utah. Uh, I was born in 1981 and I lived in the same house. From the age of like two years old all the way up until 20, I mean, I didn't live there, but my parents moved when I was 26 years old, right? So I was very entrenched in this one little community. So um, I, as a kid, I was always looking for for just something fun. Um, I, was a, I was a pretty hard worker, but I wasn't a focused worker, if that makes sense. So, um, my mom gave up so much for me to learn piano. Okay, well, she would make me sit on the piano for 30 minutes every day, and she'd just set an egg timer. You cannot leave the piano for 30 minutes um, or until this timer goes off. Well, okay, mom. So I would sit on the piano for 30 minutes without doing what I was supposed to do on the piano. <laughs> So it's just a huge waste of time and a huge waste of my mom's resources. I I am currently practicing the piano on a daily basis just to try to repent for wasting <laughs> my mom's uh, sacrifice there. But um, so some like my piano teachers would say I was lazy, 
my uh, calculus teachers would say, or teacher would say, I was a goofball. My my choir teacher would say that I was uh, a disturber. <laughs> I don't but, know anybody now who would call you uh, lazy. I do. I could definitely get on board with the goofball still, uh, <laughs> but and and not much of a disturber anymore though. <laughs> Um, but I think my friends would all, all growing up, they'd say that um, I was just a big dumb kid. So, hmm. cool. Well, um, did you always want to go and be a, a dentist or a prosthodontist? No, I uh, had grown up thinking I was going to be a pediatric dent, uh, pediat a pediatrician. Excuse me. Um, and I believed I was going to be a pediatrician all the way up until I was starting college or actually I returned from my two-year LDS mission to Brazil and then started college thinking I was going to be a pedi pediatrician um, and I was dating this girl and dating pretty seriously and she suggested don't be a doctor be a dentist and I was like no way <laughs> why would I be a dentist? That is such a lesser profession. And at the time, my, my older brother was in dental school. And um, I actually broke up with this girl partly because she was uh, opposed to me being a doctor instead of being a dentist. And... Um, so that summer, I was boating with my family, and I was wakeboarding, and I, I took a spill, pretty pretty good spill, and really hurt my ear. So my dad ends up taking me to urgent care, and um, while we were with the doctor, my dad just says, hey, you know, Brandon's thinking about being a doctor. What advice do you have for him? And the doctor says, don't do it. And not the not the response my dad was really looking for, but it was actually very helpful. She explained why she was dis uh, I guess disenchanted by medicine and um so I was starting to think about those things and then hearing about my brother's experiences in dental school and what he loved about dentistry, I started looking at it more seriously and thought, you know what, actually there's a lot of opportunity in dentistry because there's pediatric dentists. Okay, great. Well, maybe I'll, be, I'll do that. And then when I got into dental school, um, what, what really struck me was um, that your third and fourth year of dental school, you're, you're treating patients practically full-time like, like a dentist would, except it's under supervision by what's called a preceptor. And whenever you have a patient come in, you have to work the patient up for the treatment that would best suit them. And then you present that to the preceptor and the preceptor has to sign off on it. Well, too often I'd, I'd get a case and it was pretty challenging. And so I'd try to work a treatment plan together and then I'd take it to my preceptors and they'd, you know, kind of scratch their heads and they'd be like, hmm, I don't know this. Uh, why don't you go talk to the prosthodontist about this one? So that kept happening, and I thought to myself, well, I don't want to be that guy who's scratching his head and thinking, oh, I don't know. 
I want to be the guy who who knows how to treat this challenging case. So in dental school, that's when I decided to pursue prosthodontics as my specialty. Nice. So tell me a little about your um, mentors. Who's been mentors in your life? How did you get connected with them and how have they been helpful for you? Um, I, I mean, obviously, my dad has been a huge mentor for me. He He's also, an I totally skipped out on the father figure section of the questions. So um, please do. Let's pause. Take a minute. Tell me a little just a little about your dad, what he did well, and then we'll jump to mentors. OK, great. Yeah. So my dad is one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He's an avid reader, which we always tease him about because we'll be at the beach and he's got a book in hand. Um, <laughs> so we're digging in the sand and he's uh, he's learning about oil or whatever. So um, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Um, he's very disciplined. He is, uh, you know, I wouldn't say he's a, you know, the the most fun-loving guy, but he's fun to be with. Um, and then. He's very big on education. I remember one day actually sitting down at the piano at night when I should have been doing my homework. I was goofing around on the piano and he had just gotten my report card. <laughs> it was my sophomore year of high school and I got a D in my honors English class. Right. I I was in honors English because my dad made me do honors English. Education was very important to him. He wanted me to always aspire to the highest levels of education. Well, I didn't want to be in honors English because I hate reading. And I hate the books that they make you read. Yeah, totally. High school English, like the required reading is just horrible. Right? Any of the required books in high school I thought were awful. And so I... I never read the books that I was supposed to. Um, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember on multiple occasions buying the uh, Cliff Notes and trying to write a report on whatever book I was supposed to have read like the day before it was due. I was right. just like making stuff up <laughs> the reports well, in high school. And you took a, you took a, a little step further than I did. I just thought that from the book cover and the title, I'd be able to pass any quiz that I was given. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds risky. <laughs> and it was a big risk. So my dad gets this report card where I've got this D in my honors English class. And uh, I'm dinking around on the piano. And he just comes out of his bedroom. And he says, he slaps the report card down on the piano. And he says, I think you have better things to be doing than dinking around on the piano. <laughs> mm. And that was his way of saying, get off the piano, go do your homework. I don't want to see this again. <laughs> I'm picturing your mom in the other room, just like happy that you were at least touching the piano. Like maybe he's going to learn something by screwing around. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Well, that actually ended up being a really good thing, a really good experience for me because, um, my junior year, my dad said, fine, if you don't want to do honors English, then just do normal English. I don't care. And 
So I got to choose that year to do just normal English. And it took me about two weeks being in that class, learning the things that they were learning. And not to sound like, uh, you know, above anybody, but just being with that crowd mm. after having been in honors English all through seventh, eighth, ninth, and, and tenth grade. Um, it was kind of eye-opening, and I, I switched into my my junior year, I, sw I switched into honors English again, and this time it was by my choice. Mm. And so my performance improved, obviously, because my dad wasn't going to hold me accountable to his choice, but he definitely was going to hold me accountable to my own choice. Right. Oh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, um, my strategy was... I took some honors classes in high school, but they also had this, I think it was called college prep. I'm not sure, but it was kind of like the, um, I don't know if it's a, a slightly advanced, but not quite honors level. So it was, uh, just a little, little easier. And I was like, I could go in there and make A's with minimal effort. And then I had friends who were taking honors and AP everything. And I like, I had a few honors and a few AP, but like, it was, I was like, man, it's so much easier to get a straight A's in college prep and not do any homework. than you guys are like working your tails off over here. And I'm like, anyway, so I'm, I'm all about that. Like take the easier one. It still, still helps you get ready for college, but the GPA matters a big time when you're, when you're going to college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. so he was, my dad was just very, uh, he was, he was strict when it came to school. He expected you to, to do your homework and he was very big into math. It was a traumatic event because he was an engineer by training, but it was always a traumatic, uh, event to have dad help you with your math homework because mm -hmm. you might be able to do two plus two in your head and just write down four. But to this engineer, you had to write down every single step of the of the problem. And um, so whereas my friends would turn in their homework assignments on maybe two pages of paper, <laughs> my homework assignments were like 10 or 15 pages for math. And uh, it's just something we laugh about now. But I'm grateful for that uh, training. I feel like I could be wrong, but I, I picture you as not taking that same approach as a dad. Um, I don't is am I right in that? Yeah, so I have a much different approach to raising my children than my dad did. Not to say that my dad's way was wrong, but there were just things that I observed from how he was with us kids that um, uh, I just didn't want to incorporate in how I raise my children. So, mm. however, I do, I, I joke around with my children a lot. And so when, when I'm helping them with their math homework, I tell them about my experience with my dad of having to write down every single step and um, uh, turning in pages and pages of, of math equations. Um, whereas my friends were just turning in sheets of just the answers. Uh, mm. So with my own children, I just, I just, I joke around with them a lot. I kind of tease them. Um, I try to use, um, I don't try to lecture them. I just try to use object lessons for them to come up with their own conclusions. 
and um, that seems to work pretty well for us. You have some really smart kids, so it seems like it's working. Or, well, or maybe they just came out brilliant anyway, probably due to Marion and her genetics, and then uh, you haven't screwed them up too bad. That might be it. So that's, that's, that's a better way to look at it. So <laughs> If you consider the amount of time that my wife spends with the children and the amount of time that I get to spend with my children, then it's 90% Marion and 10% of me just not getting in their way. Mm. I don't want to sound like an absentee father. I'm not an absentee father. I'm very engaged with my children. I'm there when they need me. Um, but they know that for for me to provide for them it's not just a matter of me being at work from nine to five monday through friday and they are uh, very supportive of me and they they actually really enjoy seeing the entrepreneurial uh work so yeah. they get excited they get excited to learn about okay so dad how much does it cost you to make your parts? How much do you sell them for? And then their eyes just bulge. They're like, oh, so. And have all of this potential that I wouldn't get just as an employee. So it's been fun for them to, to just observe what it means to be an entrepreneur, but also what the opportunity is in being an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. I could... And I know they're all over that. It was fun. We went out recently for a, a outing with uh, my kids and your kids. And, and um, we were just talking about the importance of entrepreneurship uh, and how it's passed down through the generations in the family. You know, kids who see uh, parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents who are entrepreneurs that gives them a vision of of what they can do kind of i think boosts the confidence a little bit and then also i want to say for anyone who doesn't know brandon brandon is definitely not a, an absentee father he's very engaged and uh and you do work a ton but i i see you with your kids as much or more than than i am with my own so um yeah all right let's well, jump um mentors anything anyone you want to um specifically call out or or thank or any comments yeah. you want to share on on for others as uh, suggestions for how to go about um, finding and and uh, being assisted by mentors? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Bill Catmull, Scott Woody were my scout leaders growing up, and they were Renaissance men. They could do anything. Bill Catmull is, um, you know, he he was a cabinet maker. He was a teacher. Um, and he was always incorporating technology into his wood shop. Um, I was introduced to CNC uh, uh, technology in his wood shop and lasers and what they could do. And so he, he was very instrumental in helping me just kind of uh, see entrepreneurship in action. Mm. And he was very good about involving us as scouts in um uh, projects that we would learn those types of skills scott witty the same thing he was an entrepreneur he had an embroidery business and um it was just fun to be able to see the lifestyle of these men versus the lifestyle of the other men in my neighborhood who just you know were working their 
their jobs, although they were very good jobs, there's a difference between an entrepreneur, a business owner, and a, a an the lifestyle of an employee. And I'm not saying one's better or worse than the other. I'm just saying they're a little bit different. And yeah. so, but you're at a good spot where you you've um you've put invested so much into being an entrepreneur. You said a lot of times where you're working 16, 18, 20 hours a day, but now you're at a point where the practice is healthy and your business is uh, your side business is, is uh, growing quite a bit. And you've been able to reinvest that new um, capital in the form of time and money into um, doubling down with the family, you know? So, um, right. cause entrepreneurship is definitely a grind and sometimes it's a constant grind, but you've done a great job of um, allowing it to uh, supplement your lifestyle in the way you want without consuming 20 hours a day, every day forever. Right, and that's and that's where the teamwork with my wife comes into play, right? We know that we're doing this for a specific purpose, and that is to provide us more time with the family in the future. And that has, over the last six years, that really has proven to be the case, that those first two years out of the Air Force that were just horrific in times of, or in uh, terms of time away from the family, um, they've paid off very well for us now, where I actually have a lot more time with the family than I would otherwise. That's awesome. And, and, and a lot more time to pursue this this other business, smart denture conversions, right? So it's been it's been really beneficial. I've loved it. So and then my uncles, Uncle Barry and Uncle Roy and uncle david those are my mom's brothers um uncle roy and uncle barry were um, owners of this uh manufacturing company that make parts like i guess obsolete parts for cranes that are uh they can't be found elsewhere so they make these parts and it's been a very good business for them and um uh, so just watching them as I grew up and seeing what they were able to do with their wealth, it's been um, a, a very good role model for for me. And then also my father-in-law is he was an entrepreneur as well. Had his own private wealth management firm, and um, you know he has a whole lot of experience in in personal finance, and he's been a great resource to me as I've been pursuing these uh, uh, businesses and their growth. That's awesome. And I, I would feel very guilty if I didn't mention Grandpa Allred as well. Uh, Grandpa Douglas Allred, he's my great grandfather, my mom's, my mom's mom's dad. And he is an incredible example to me of loving your wife and just in a in a kind and gentle way so i i love my my great grandpa allred awesome you've had some a lot of great people who have impacted your life uh when you when you have time that <laughs> aside from your business ventures your family time um do you have any hobbies and and what are they how often do you get a chance to participate yeah so i love boating 
motorboating um, and most uh, specifically wakeboarding and wake surfing. That, that's what I love to do. Um, and then when it's too cold to do it in the water, I like to ski on the snow. Mm. But you bring up a good point. There's not a whole lot of time. So the last time I went skiing on the snow was like 20 years ago. But I, I would call that that's that's more of a dream than a hobby. <laughs> right. Any, anymore, it is just a, a dream. But boating, I've been able to do ever since my wife let us buy a boat. She, um, you know, this kind of goes back to one of the earlier questions you asked about what kind of mistakes have you learned in your entrepreneur entrepreneurship. So hiring the right people is essential. My wife, when we got married, she said she would control the finances. And I said, that's fine. I will, we will have a boat. And she said, that's, that's great. And then we got married and she says, but you will pay for it in cash. I was like, oh crap, that's going to be forever before I can do that. So in 2016, in 2017, we filed our 2016 tax returns and our accountant who we had hired on the cheap, um, he uh, filed our taxes and we got a really good return that year. So I told Mary and I said, you weren't expecting this money. So this is how I'm going to pay for the boat. And she says, great, fine, you're right. So I got to buy the boat in 2017. It was fantastic. Well, not too many months later, that accountant uh, schedules a meeting with me and my partners. And he says, uh, guys, I made a mistake. And so he had a piece of paper and he shifted it upside down to all three of us. And he said, that 2016 filing, I made a mistake. And instead of that, Twenty or twenty-five thousand dollar return you got. You actually owe sixty-six thousand dollars each. <laughs> oh man! And we're like, oh crap. But so I didn't have sixty-six thousand dollars that I could just fork over to the IRS because a lot of that cat, a lot of that is, um, well, I don't know if we want to get into that, but financing the practices you're using your profits to pay for the the financing of the practice right so you borrow money from the bank some of that is interest and that's tax deferred but what you what you pay in principal that is profit and so you're taxed on that so that's money that never came into my pocket but it's money that i owe to the irs ouch and so um, I didn't have $66,000 to pay that back. So now I have a loan with the IRS to pay that back. But because of that mistake, I got my boat. <laughs> so I'm not too <laughs> There's a silver lining for you. So the lesson There's learned the for others is, is find a good accountant. That's, uh, that's important. You don't want a $66,000 bill. Find a good bill. accountant. That's right. On that note, you... You've completed, uh, I guess you you left um, your dental training without debt uh, or significant debt, at least from uh, thanks to the Air, United States Air Force, which is awesome. But you also, you know, uh, have business debt from acquiring practices. Uh, you have a large family. 
Tell me about your approach to when it comes to saving and, and debt. Uh, you know, you hear the Dave Ramsey's of the world uh, pay off everything, save, um, spend money later. Some people are drowning in debt and enjoying the moment and uh, the future is not so bright. Where do you fall on that spectrum and, and what's your approach or advice to others who have kids in the home and want to spend money, but also want to be prudent for the future? Yeah, so Marion comes from a you know a family background of of wealth management, right? So she was always taught to um, put th- I think it was thirty percent to savings and ten percent to uh, charitable uh, donations and. Um, and then you have the rest for spending. So my father-in-law advised us that we should have six months cash that we could live off of for six months, or cash that we could live off of for six months in case something happened, you lose your job or something happens, you've got this cash that you can live on, okay? So that just goes into savings. And then... Um, you're always putting into retirement, um, I think he says, 10% into retirement. And then um, the rest you can, uh, you, the 10% to charitable donations, and then the rest you can have to play with or live with. So that's that's a very comfortable thing for me to do, right? It's not overly focused on just, save 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 get out of debt no this is this is a marathon i don't want to sprint i want to be able to look back on these years with my children with fond memories that we've created together building that relationship um but doing it within our means that we could do it right so we're not the family that's going around the world um you know traveling to exotic places we're a family that can have fun just going for a camping trip or going for a week at a, a lake here in North Carolina uh, or just visiting family. We're all about just making lasting memories that build relationships. And I don't feel like we have to spend or, you know, sell the farm to do that. Good. So I, I'm not an aggressive pay down debt. No, it's just come up with a plan and execute that plan and stay focused to the plan. Cool. So aside from being a dentist and prosthodontist, if you could pick one one topic that you have in your brain right now, all the knowledge you have as a 39-year-old with all your life experience, if you could download all of that knowledge somehow go back in time and upload it into your 22 year old brain which topic uh would you want to download and upload um so i do think that i've learned a whole lot about money management through all of this um you know this experience that we've talked about 
And I would love for my younger self to know what I now know about money management so that that younger self could uh, make better decisions with uh, his money and not be so, um, I mean, I was really stupid with money when I was younger. I, I remember going to this one timeshare type um, sales pitch and I thought, oh, I should join that. And so, so I dropped, I don't know, $5,000 that I didn't really have, you know, as a college student. But I was thinking, yeah, that'll be great because I can go on a honeymoon to that, that place. Well, that was just stupid. Yeah. There's something they, I'm telling you, they must have like some kind of uh, essential oil diffusers in those rooms with some kind of like uh, chemical <laughs> that, that gets everyone to just want to buy something. Cause those sales pitches are so powerful where people who walk into that room, like I'm not going to buy a timeshare. And then you, you're at, you a couple hours later, you're like signing the document. Yeah. There's so many people who have, who have like, yeah, we knew this was a bad idea, but we just couldn't say no. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think I'd also like to inform my 22 year old self um, about, um, although I've never really been um, exposed to these dangers, I do know a lot of people who are struggling with, um, you know, uh, internet issues, most specifically pornography. And so I just want my 22 year old self to be a lot more aware of how you can protect yourself and protect your future family from um, not just uh, that influence in your life, but also protect yourself from others or people who might be um, uh, abusing that type of, of media. Yeah, good, good to know. Uh, so tell me nothing, you know, nothing too personal, but tell me a, a little about your family and one thing you feel like you're nailing as a parent. Um, so I have six children currently they're ages 15, 13, 11, 10, eight, and, or sorry, nine, eight, and five. And I think the one thing that my children will always be able to say without a doubt is that dad really, really loves mom. I've always been, well, I, I heard a while back that the best thing that a dad can do for his children is to love their mother. And so that has been my life's mission is for my children to know that mom is my favorite person in the entire world and you can do nothing uh nothing will irritate me more than if you upset your mother so, uh, i'm like most likely to blow up on the kids when they do something stupid. i'm like you know that's gonna piss off your mom like what are you doing that was stupid <laughs> so, so 
I I don't know if you have time for this, but just a real quick story. Um, I was we were in England, <clears throat> and we had four kids at the time, and Marion was just way overwhelmed. The house had been destroyed by these four kids, and I came home from work in my you know military fatigues, and uh, I one of my laboratory technicians at the time was a a training instructor for the for the I had been a training instructor for the Air Force in basic training, and he was now working in my dental laboratory at Lake and Heath. And um, he would tell me stories all the time about how he would do things. And I thought that was really cool. So I come home from work and my wife meets me, Marion meets me at the door in tears. Just the kids have been absolutely disobedient. They've destroyed the house and she's just exhausted, right? And so I said, well, can we do this my way? And I knew it was bad when she said, yes. And so I went absolutely training instructor on these children. Kids, you get down here right now, right this instant. And I just, <clears throat> um, and I the told them. The experience that you never had, by the way, as a, in the cushy path. Of <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So I actually made the kids sit on the couch in the in our family room while I went around helping Marion just pick up around the house. And um, if I heard them move on the couch, I'd go in that room. I said, "I said you sitting on this couch." And um, so after I got the house picked up, I just sat down in a chair opposite the couch they were sitting on, and I just stared them down. And I said, kids, do you know why I'm so upset? And they're like kind of just shaking in their boots, right? And I told them, I said, how do you think I feel when my wife meets me at the door in tears because of how our children have treated her that day? And, you know, they they got it they're like well it must make you mad i was like that's right and so after a little discussion i i brought him in i gave him all a hug and i said go go into the kitchen and tell your mommy that you're sorry and give her a big hug and tell her how much you love her anyway so that's just my approach is i want my children to know i love marion more than life itself and definitely more than I love them. I love my children and they know I love my children, but I always remind them at dinner table conversations, kids, do you know who my favorite person in the whole wide world is? Yes, dad, it's mom. <laughs> so that's one thing that's that good. I feel like I'm doing pretty well as a parent. Cool. Um, tell me what it's like as you, your older kids are becoming teenagers and um, what's it like transitioning, you know, from preteen to teen? Any advice for other parents out there uh, who are going to be leading some teenagers? Yeah, um, my mom raised me with the philosophy of it's always easier to lighten up the reins than it is to tighten up the reins, meaning we were pretty strict with our children at a young age because we know it's as teenage years come, 
the children are going to be pushing boundaries a little bit more, and we're going to have to be lightening up those reins a little bit. And so if we started off with a pretty loose rein, then we were fearful that our teenagers would just be running, you know, uh, running rampant. So I feel like um, as we're transitioning from, you know, some younger children to teenage children, it's been easier for us. And our children have been actually very ideal. Um, they don't push the boundaries like we thought they would. And I mean, they're better than I am. So I don't know if I have any good advice on what it's like to transition from young children to teenagers because our our teenagers are are really just self-sufficient and they they're they're better than I am I'm always I'm always trying to get them to just kind of loosen up a little bit and (laughs) (laughs) um little different question for you this is one that I was thinking about recently that I want to start asking um, all podcast guests moving forward. And that's, have you ever had a time in your adult life where you were running low on give a damn? And if so, how did you get out of that? Um, uh, and I'll say this, you strike me as someone who maybe has never had that problem before. But no, is that the case? No, I mean, I think we all run into fatigue. And um, I, I I, don't know how to answer that, Sean. I, Like when it comes to my business, I run into that all the time where it's like, Okay, well, how important is this really? Not that important. Okay, well, then I don't care. Handle it however you want to, and I pass it off to somebody else, right? So I'm a big believer in um, just delegating as much as possible. When it comes to my children, I've gotten to a point at at some points where it's like, okay, I'm not going to fight you on this. Go ahead and give that a try. But I will make a prediction. And here it is. And I'll, you know, I'll predict something. (laughs) And then I let them go and do it however they want to. Kind of like my dad did with Honors English. Okay, Brandon, you don't want to apply yourself. You don't want to work hard. That's fine. Do it however you want to. And then I learned from that. And I was like, okay, well, uh, I guess I should do do Honors English. So I've done that with my own children at times. I was like, okay, I I don't care. Do it however you see fit, but just take note of what I'm, and I'll even write it down, <laughs> my my prediction, because I don't believe that they're going to um, really see it as, well, dad called it. Well, no, I, I called it. Here, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's hardcore writing it down. <laughs> I uh, What we've been doing lately is, trying to say, Hey kids, like, you know, when they're looking at a decision and we're like, you know, that's, there's one way you could do it. Sure. Uh, here's some other, you know, based on what I've seen, here's some other things to keep in mind and, on, uh, 
outcomes you may not be expecting. Um, and I'll give you my two cents, but you can do what you want. And um, I feel like that's that's an approach that has changed how we guide them through different decisions they're making. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of the Socratic method, which is, you know, just kind of asking questions. So if they had come up with a, an idea and they want to do something, <clears throat> then just ask leading questions that help them come up with the uh, right answer on their own, in quotes. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's a really good parenting tool, actually. Yeah, yeah. I had a teammate at work that uh, does that with me. and. Uh, I'm like, you crafty guy. You always get me, man. He's so smart. He asks these good questions. Like, Dang it. He's always like questioning my assumptions in a polite way. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. That's, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> anyway, um, when you're on a, let's just say, uh, not necessarily for a longer period of time, but on a, a day where you're just have, feeling overwhelmed, anxious, or just, just generally having a bad day, what do you do? How do you get out of it? Um, so I, uh, I waste a lot of time on YouTube when I'm, when I'm like feeling down or if I feel overwhelmed, I like go into this, uh, this like coma, the YouTube coma. Hmm. And I really like watching the red green show. <laughs> what is that? Uh, it's just a it's a funny Canadian show where it's this it's it's super funny. Red Green is the name of this lodge um, president, and he's always teaching like handy ways to do something that are just ridiculous. And it's it's everything's made out of duct tape, mm. <laughs> and uh, it's just a real lighthearted and real creative way. So that's just my escape. Like if I'm feeling down, I just want <clears throat> to escape and um, laugh and then get right back to it, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so I always try to find a way to just find some way to laugh and then get back to work. Yeah, it seems like laughing is it's kind of like exercise or or going for a walk. You know, it like resets your your mind and your mood, and and uh, I can imagine that being very helpful. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, wrapping up, last last few questions here. What is something that you are looking forward to in the next twelve months? Um. Well, we just. Uh, offered well we just put an offer on a lake house and so in the next 12 months I really look forward to um, spending a lot of family time at Lake Gaston here in North Carolina it's my favorite retreat so really excited about that that's awesome you guys are telling me about the family trip you recently took and it sounds like it was a blast yeah it's tons of fun can't wait to have you up there, Sean. I'm down. I'm so down. Um, you mentioned the, was it Red and Green Show? Is that what you call it? The, yeah, the Red Green Show. The just Red, Red Green, Green Show. Okay. So that's a good one on YouTube. Any other uh, shows or podcasts that you want to recommend other people check out? Um, 
there's uh, so I don't I don't watch a whole lot of TV TV. Everything I do is streamed. So uh, like I said, YouTube. There I have just recently discovered something called the Dry Bar. Have you heard of that? Is that the comedy show or the yeah. comedy club or something? Yeah, it's it's a Utah-based comedy club, and it's just really clean humor, which is hard to find nowadays. Yeah. You know, where people will throw in language or they'll throw in just risque topics. I have this dry bar has had me laughing hysterically. Real funny comedians who just are clean. The topics are family friendly. It's been yeah. awesome. So yeah. I'm a I'm a big fan of that. There's been several good ones. I loved the one, the guy who's like um his skit was titled You'll Immediately Regret Your Neck Tattoo or Face <laughs> Tattoo or something. It was so funny. He was good. Um yeah, I like uh listening to dry bar comedy. The kids like it too. Yeah, it's and so I always like looking for things that I can do with my children. In our house, we actually don't watch anything above PG. And that's just oh, because wow. Yeah, we just want to be able to do it all as a family. So um, <laughs> my kids are like, "Dad, when can we watch PG thirteen? We're like, you know, my oldest is ten, and I'm like, eh, I don't know, soon. But uh, <laughs> they're, they're itching. They see yeah. us like when, when we put them to bed, we turn on like the Avengers or or whatever, you know, just uh, Star Wars. So you, you don't even you and Marion don't you you just keep it PG that way you guys can always watch with the kids. Yeah, so I mean we don't we do not uh, you know recommend this for everybody, but for ourselves we just figured it would be a lot easier conversation to have with our children about why we're not going to watch that movie if we also didn't have to explain why it was okay for us to watch that movie, mm. right? So it's just it's just an easier parenting technique. Call it laziness. Maybe I'm just not, <laughs> maybe I'm just not smart enough how to uh, have that conversation. But we just figured if we're if we don't watch PG-13 movies, then our children aren't going to want to watch PG-13 movies, and it's not going to be like, well, d mom, dad, why can you watch that movie but I can't? Well, we don't we don't have to worry about that conversation. And quite honestly, there's so much out there that we don't feel like we're missing out on anything either. Right. Brandon, I know you are a very generous person. Um, having, I know you've given uh, financially to multiple causes. You've also done a lot of pro bono work professionally um, to assist those, especially, you know, in need of uh, dental care um, and, you know, reconstructive work and just an all around good dude. Um, Question for you, though, is there one particular cause that you want to call out that you wish like more people were aware of or more people were uh, able to contribute to? Uh, yeah, so I actually just learned about this organization this week. So I haven't yet been able to contribute, but the plan is to contribute. Um, have you ever heard of the, under, the Operation Underground Railroad? I've heard about it. I don't know much about it. This is an it's an incredible story, and there's a, a documentary called Operation to Saint um, that I really recommend people watch. It's about this uh, this organization that goes in to save um, 
children that are being trafficked for various uh, reasons, but you know, sex and and labor. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this is one of their sting operations that they pulled off in Haiti. It's just incredible. Is uh, that the one that was founded by a guy who was like um, in the intelligence community and used to work on that for the government, and now he's like yes. doing his own thing? Yes. Okay, I have. I I had a friend tell me about it like a few years ago, but I haven't. Um, I don't really know much about it. It's it's a pretty incredible story, and this this man. Like I was in tears watching this documentary about this guy, just the biggest heart and his wife, very much like my wife, super supportive. Um, and I just really relate to this guy and to, to his family and to what he's doing, I think is a very commendable uh, uh, way to live your life. Like he, he is literally about saving children. And I turned to Marion while watching this uh, documentary and I said, you know, my life is dedicated to saving teeth. His life is dedicated to saving children. That's that's something special. That's really, yeah. really neat. To date, they've saved like 4,000 children. Holy cow. But um, what's sad is that there are over 2 million children who are trafficked every year. Whoa. That's a huge that is, number. That's so, so sad. So it, they really do rely on, on, you know, people like you. And they call them abolitionists. So, mm-hmm. you know, people who are donating to their cause are just like the abolitionists of, of slavery here in the United States. But this truly is modern day slavery. And they are about abolishing it. And it's really, really cool to see what they're doing. As you're talking about it, I'm having like a little flashback from when my buddy Tom was telling me about it, like, I don't know, two or three or four years ago. And is this, um, correct me if I'm wrong, They because it's like a private organization and it's funded and he's he's got a background with like CIA or FBI or something, but because Homeland of security, pri- yeah. Homeland Security, okay. But he can, he's able to be a little more nimble and um, execute quickly to um, save kids or find, I don't know, but there was some some sort of angle because he he's out of the public um, organization, he was able to kind of be work with them and while being um, extra efficient? Yeah, so the reason why he needed to be outside of the government is because in order for the U.S. to use our resources, um, it has to be tied to U.S. interests, right? Mm. And so, um, but the problem is, and he explains all of this in his documentary, the problem is that a lot of the the demand for this type of of slavery is actually um, it comes from Americans. So we are he he explains that Americans are the number one producer and consumer of child pornography in the world. Yeah. And so it's it's really beneficial for a United States based organization to go in and help other governments like the Haitian government to go in and help them um, 
do these sting operations because he and his team look like the the consumer. They are mm. American tourists going into these underdeveloped countries, and they look like the the clients that these uh, traffickers deal with on a regular basis. So these foreign governments can hire this private organization to come in and help them execute these operations to uh, catch these perpetrators and these traffickers mm. and to free these children. And then it's not just about the sting operation. They then also have a really good um, aftercare program to get these children um, um, to, to help them with all of the you know problems associated with living that type of a life for oh uh, that's yeah it's not just re you know putting them back with their parents whenever possible when they can find them but also the probably ongoing counseling and and just life guidance that that they may need based on the trauma that they've been through exactly yeah. and keep in mind that you know a lot of these children they are orphans and that's how they are that's how they're taken and then introduced or trafficked the way they are so it's just really really sad and i, yeah. I love i love the mission of this operation underground railroad it is one of the saddest things to think like you know we, we look at it, whether it's drugs or or um trafficking humans and especially children it's like man this is such a uh, sad thing going on but like you said um, uh, the american uh, market is consuming and i guess in this case even producing more of this horrific content and uh and anyway the good news is that there's organizations and people uh not just homeland security and other groups but private groups that are working to help remedy that so i think that's i'm, I'm glad you call that out it's um a as noble a cause as any other, <laughs> maybe, maybe more so. So, um, operation underground railroad, people can go on and become an abolitionist and, uh, donate to help save general, genuinely save lives. Absolutely. Cool. Brandon, this was a blast, man. Um, I've loved talking with you. Is there anything that we should have covered that we haven't hit on yet? Um, no, I mean, I just, I think what you're doing is awesome, Sean being a dad today is is you know if you look at all of the tv shows or movies they kind of portray dads as just being kind of bumbling idiots and it's just really cool to have this podcast where we get to you know hear and talk to everyday dads and you know just kind of see what it's like and the importance of being a dad today so i, I love what you're doing good job yeah. we might be idiots but we can also like hold down a job and do do decent stuff <laughs> <laughs> that's right who who uh which other episodes did you like that you've listened to oh oh my gosh so Sh Sh what was his name sean shay that was that was amazing like I, I listened to that one right around the time where you were scheduling or, or, you know, you said, Hey, we should do an episode. And I was thinking, yeah, that'd be great. And then I hear Shay's and I'm like, Oh my gosh, Sean, after Shay, nobody's going <laughs> to want to 
Nobody's going to want to hear about a prosthodontist. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying Nobody to keep the dentist. It can't all be like um, super inspirational, like intense, um, because that's not your every, you know, I want to spotlight like everyday people who are interesting and successful and normal and, and uh, with the occasional, um, you know, it'll mix it up, give a variety, but um, I think there's value in his shades, like an inspirational figure. Whereas the, the Brandons of the world, it's like, Hey, he's a, he's a smart guy. He's a dentist and, and a entrepreneur, but maybe a little more uh, relatable and, and also um, just as valuable as a role model because it's, you know, you're a, a normal, successful, interesting dude. Well, thanks man. Thank you. Um, been a blast and uh, we'll be in touch. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And it'd be awesome if you told somebody or tweeted about it or posted about it or somehow through telekinesis shared this podcast with a friend. We welcome all listeners and thank you very much for tuning in. Have a fantastic day.